Hello listeners, will you allow me a minute to tell you about Pass Test? If you haven't used them yet, you should. They are a fantastic online resource with hundreds of questions and answers covering multiple medical exams, including the MRCS, MRCP and medical finals. I've used them lots and found the resource so useful, particularly the past papers for these exams. As a listener to the podcast, you lucky people get 15% off some of these subscriptions. So don't wait around. I mean, do until the end of the episode, but then go and get your access. Links and codes will be in the show notes. Welcome to MRCS on the Move. Bowels, bones and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Hello and welcome back to another episode of MRCS on the Move. I hope everyone's vision is going um, well and you're still finding these these helpful. I am, again, very excited to welcome with me um, a friend and old colleague, Annalise Coco, and her son currently at the moment, Dominic. Say hello. hello. Say hello to hello. <laughs> Are you going to tell us all about trauma? <laughs> Is that what you're doing? No, I'll probably tell you about trauma and he needs to go to sleep. So hello, everybody. Well, it's great to have you both with us, especially you, Annalise. Um, it's great to see you again. I worked with Annalise when I uh, lived in Australia. Um, so she's currently in Sydney, hence I'm saying my pyjamas having just woke up and they're talking about going to bed. <laughs> um, so Annalise is a general and trauma surgeon, um, but currently doing a um, PhD, but was my trauma registrar. What I thought Annalise would be really helpful with um, is just doing an episode essentially on primary survey to start with. We just run through it, come up, go through some of the pathologies that we're going to come across and yeah, see what we come up with. Is that all right with you, Annalise? Sounds good, mate. Whatever would be useful. Uh, Annalise um, rejected my offer for pre-sending some questions, so she's coming in blind. (laughs) 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 Okay, so I'm going to set the scene. You are the general surgical registrar, as it normally is here, on-call slash trauma registrar, on-call in a large tertiary hospital. You've just managed to put the kettle on and go to sit down with a cup of tea when your trauma bleep goes off. So you reluctantly put the tea back down, walk down to any. And my first question is, who should you be expecting to see as part of the trauma team down in A&E? So what this question reveals is that context is everything in trauma care. So it, it depends on where you are and it's your responsibility to know what resources are available to you, not only in terms of personnel, but in terms of equipment, in terms of whether or not you have immediate access to theatres versus interventional radiology or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And it's also incumbent upon you to know which members of your team are in-house or on-site and who is not. So in general terms, uh, what I'd say is, that in most Australian contexts, and I think it's probably the same for the UK, in terms of the membership and the leadership structure of the team, it's often the emergency department who lead the team. Hello. And then there may 
or may not be defined roles for other people. So whether the, say, the airway and breathing components are separated out from circulation um, and whether they have medical and nursing staff dedicated to that is very much dependent on the team. But that's why it's so important for everybody individually to know the primary survey because then you're not reliant on having other team members around. You always know what to do regardless of what your team components are. So, yeah, I actually have trouble answering that question because it depends on where I am and mm. what I'm doing. But in general terms, I would go down immediately and find out if I don't already know <laughs> yeah. who's available, what the capabilities are, um, and prepare because there's no point going down after you had your cup of tea because you've lost valuable time getting you the team assembled. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess in general, in sort of general terms, you'd expect... A nurse to be there, an A and E doctor, an anaesthetist, maybe a general surgeon. A bit being a yeah, would that be right or maybe not? <laughs> so in general terms, you would have representation always from emergency, both medical and nursing. Yeah. Um, most often from emergency, you would have not only the clinical staff but also, and this is very helpful, one of the nurses who would be scribing and keeping it. Yeah, everyone kind of in the same frame with communication. Not all places have anaesthetists on site, and so yeah. that's something where it's very useful to get done early. And then once you get a bit of an idea from the ambulance phone call, because most of the time we get some notice, mm. uh, you can get an idea of whether you're likely to require anaesthetic backup in terms of airway management, especially. Yeah, and in other centres, so it, as I said, it's very sensitive. But in another sentence, um, intensive care may also come down depending yeah. on the, the level of trauma activation that has gone on. Yeah. What should be ready and available in recess, sort of equipment wise? Yeah, so the easiest so I, I do, do tend to group equipment and personnel together not mm. because I think that people are equipment but because someone has to be able to use the equipment yeah. the easiest way to think about that is to break up the equipment according to the aspects of the primary survey so for a for airway obviously you're going to need airway equipment that's going to range all the way from adjuncts all the way to tubes and then the different types of tubes and different sizes um, that will also be influenced by whether by your context, so bring that back again, whether you're a purely adult emergency department versus mixed adults and peds versus peds only. Mm -hmm. And so you'll need all your airway equipment. Um, most, in fact, all really emergency departments will have a dedicated airway trolley. And it's particularly important if you're going to be the person who's using that trolley, which most of the time hopefully we won't be, um, but we need to know at least where the surgical airway equipment is for that trolley because that is one of the airway tubes. And we can talk a little bit about manoeuvres, adjuncts and tubes when we get to airway management. Yeah. Breathing-wise, I mean, it's fairly basic and obvious stuff. So you need oxygen, you need a stable supply of oxygen from the wall. Um, you also need something that's mobile, you can take it with you if you need to go to theatre or scanning or infantry radiology or wherever else. And then you need a way to deliver the oxygen. Right? So, you know, most, pretty much all trauma patients will still get oxygen, at least from nasal prongs, although there is a mounting question about that. But again, you need a way to deliver it circulation-wise. You need 
IV access, you need intraosseous access, and you need a way to get it, and you need a way to maintain it, and give an infusion. So again, IV cannulation equipment, yeah. and something to put in it. EY, you need a, you need a torch, so you can check pupils, and EY, you need something to check temperature. Yeah, Start that's great. With. That's great. Um, good way of structuring that and to think think about. I think in terms of what you need. Oh, so actually, add the other things you need are you need to know how to get more. So you need to know how you mobilize things like massive transfusion protocols. Yeah. Contacting your surgical consultant, getting access to theatre, which is not exactly equipment, but it's ancillary. If you're lucky enough, the ambulance or the pre-hospital staff will call and say and they'll give what in Australia um, has a certain pattern to it in terms of the handover. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but, yeah, basically they'll be saying it's a missed handover, it's mechanism, injuries, symptoms, signs and treatment. So yeah. they'll give a demographic information, usually something of a 37-year-old male, the mechanism, the basics are blunt and penetrating, and the details, the injuries that they suspect, the symptoms and signs that they can see in the treatment. So that's yeah. why the acronym is MISSED, okay. um, which is nice because... Again, it's the same as the primary survey. It helps if everyone's talking in the same lingo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So they call in with the, the back call or the pre-alert call and um, you're told it's a 45-year-old man and he's been knocked off a motorbike, which doing my trauma job, I will never let anyone ride a motorbike. Um, wow. <laughs> anyone that I love. <laughs> um, and they just say, okay, I think his GTS is about eight um, his respiratory rate is about 24, he's saturating 80%, heart is a bit tachycardic and blood pressure's borderline. Um, so you're like, okay, got a bit of information. So just in a very short, um, succinct way, what is a primary survey? What is the point of it and what is it made up of? So we'll get to the primary survey in a sec, but I'm going to be annoying. I'm going to explain why the mechanism is important. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. So the reason the mechanism is important is because that's your pretest probability of a certain injury type. So we know that, for example, someone who's come off their motorbike has a different chance of having a whole gamut of different injuries versus someone who's fallen from standing height, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just gives you that pre-awareness that there are certain physiologic and anatomic patterns that are associated with that mechanism. So that's why mm -hmm. we mention it. So what this primary survey does is it gives a systematic framework for identifying and treating immediate threats to life in the order in which they're most likely to kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. the reason. Yeah. <laughs> that's why <what laughs> That is it. Um, and it's helpful because... Trauma can be quite confronting by definition. Mm. It's almost always, while it's predictable, it's still a surprise because, mm. you, you know, you don't have a pre-admissions um, sit-down interview where you can go through everything with someone, right? So yeah. that's why it's a useful framework and it stops you panicking, it stops everyone else panicking, it brings everyone back onto the same yeah, approach. Um, okay, so you have... You're like, yeah, I've just done or just renewed my ATLS course. Um, ATLS. <laughs> so lucky. 
Um, do you not have it there? Do you, you have HLS? Um, we have HLS, but because we're special, uh, we have a slight variation of it called the MST, oh, which yeah. I've, I've instructed for a, a decade now. Oh. That's embarrassing. Very, very old. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's always one of those ones you're like, oh, thank goodness. Just done yeah. So, as it so happens, my ATLS last weekend. Yeah. Well, fine. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're off. Um, we're all good. So, I actually did my ATLS with my A&E consultant when I was an F2 on. on oh, um, they, they, were, they were renewing it, and I was doing it for the first time. <laughs> and I had, like, I had to assess them. It was hilarious. I had to give them feedback. <laughs> I was like, they're my consultant. But anyway. Um, um no they were amazing they were great but um so you're like yeah let me run the primary survey so you step up I want to know where you're going to go how you're going to go there and what your first step is what you're doing so what I would say is Ideally, you would have decided before the patient gets there who's doing the primary survey yeah. and you would have gone through your role allocations. And I'm not saying that to be an annoying and pedantic, but it works far better. Yeah. So yes, if um, my preferred position actually now that I'm an old boss is at the feet, at the foot of the bed so I can watch everyone else and keep situational awareness. But as the, as the surgical registrar is often allocated to you to do the primary survey and that means you need to be going through airway with c-spine control because this is a patient who's had blunt trauma breathing circulation disability exposure and environment and identifying and treating life threats as you find them and so the best way to do that is you need to get up close to the patient i am old-fashioned so it's always on their right hand side um and you want to be lateral like literally lateral on the right hand side because then you've got you've left space at the head end of the bed in case there's someone who needs to do an airway intervention, which is usually going to be either anaesthetic or the emergency doctors, um, everyone's in the crucifix position. So by being up there, you've also left the arms out for IV access to be gained at the same time. So even though the primary survey sounds like it's sequential, things are all happening at the same time, right? And the nursing staff are usually driving that and getting stuff sorted. Yeah. So I go up to the patient, and airway assessment is incredibly easy because all you are after is whether or not the airway is patent and protected, I can't probably explain this very well on a podcast, but it's just, it's a tube, it's a cylinder with a flap on top, all right? So if the flap's working, that's your epiglottis, everybody, that means that it's protected. If it's patent, the cylinder's open, okay? So if I go up to you, I'm like, hello, my name's Annalise, what's your name? And you're like, my name's Naomi. I'm like, sweet. <laughs> There's air going in and out, and your brain is working well enough that you're responding to my questions. So you start with A, and you talk. Okay, this is really important. There is such thing as too much noise in the trauma bay, yes. But if you're doing the primary survey, you need to be telling your team what you're finding and you need the team leader to be able to hear what you're finding. Mm. So assess it and then feedback. The airway is patent and protected. C-spine, again, this is blunt trauma. Um, I, remember you, I remember you going on about this when I was working with you and you were like, it's a bit going back to what you said about the mechanism being important because you were like, if they've been stabbed in the abdomen or something like that, their C-spine yes. is going to be fine. Let's use our brain. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I so think like... Everyone's like C-spine. I'm like, hang on, just stop and think. Like if someone's been stabbed in the foot, yeah. they've had penetrating trauma. 
Yeah. So you're probably wasting your time going, oh, I'm going to worry about it. I mean, yeah, some people do have a combination of blunt and penetrating, you know, get stabbed, fall over. Yeah. Um, another classic for that would be a blast injury, right? You've got the primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, and quint- oh, whatever the fifth one's actually called. Like, But, you know, in general terms, look at the person in front of you and mm. go, so, yes, no, that's one of my favourites yeah. is when people are like, oh, well, they've been stabbed in the abdomen, so I'm going to check that their C-spine's okay. You're like, well, yeah, fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, anyway, so you check their C-spine. Um, there's controversy at the moment about how to manage that, especially in some states in Australia now. Uh, soft collars are being used and other ones. Hard collars are being used. Basically, know that a C-spine injury can happen, protect the C-spine until you prove that it's not happened, and worry about the semantics of its harder soft collar later when someone gets it. So that's C-spine. But always think about it, because if someone has a high C-spine injury, which you don't manage well and you make it worse, you could kill them or mm. make the rest of their life very different to what it was previously. Yeah. So that's why airway and C-spine go together, and also because a lot of the airway manoeuvres you may or may not need um, will impact upon potential C-spine injuries. Yeah. So, yes, airway with C-spine. If you find a problem, fix it, move on to breathing. Breathing is very simple. You look well, at I'm gonna someone. Stop you. I'm going to stop you there because we've got a little bit okay. more to talk about in airway. I was nope. just, just a couple of quick questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone has a compromised airway, what kind of things are you going to see? What? How do we recognise a compromised airway? It's not generally subtle. <laughs> so first thing is if and it's so there's two things here. It's is this a compromised airway in a patient who is able to communicate, or is this a compromised airway in a patient who is obtundent, right? If it's someone who is awake and alert, they look like they are panicking because they are panicking. Mm-hmm. Um, classically, also for someone with a motorbike crash, that oh, this is ages ago now. Um, this chap had come in after coming off his bike and he was standing rigidly upright in the waiting room because that was how he was keeping his neck in alignment and his facial fractures from going nuts. So the airway compromise looks like if someone is mentating like someone is panicking um, and then if they're obtunded, it's a bit more tricky. And then if you think – so it's often – just going, oh, they look like something horribly wrong is happening. And then you've got all of the things that suggest airway compromise. So, for example, on inspection, so even going back to that, pretest probability-wise, again, with the mechanism of injury, if someone's come off their motorbike onto their face, you're immediately suspecting airway compromise. If someone's had a burn injury in a um, enclosed environment, you're immediately suspecting potential airway compromise. Yeah. If someone has obvious facial fractures, bruising, malalignment, uh, you know, they look like someone smashed them in the face, right? Immediately going, well, that's the airway. Yeah. Um, they've got a big swelling. I've already talked about bruising, but yeah, they just they look unwell. So always, if everything else fails, general appearance, they look like crap, and then, yeah, they've got some sort of malformation, deformity, you know from the history you've been given that there might be a problem. So it's not generally subtle. Yeah, yeah. The harder ones, I 
think are when someone has a reduced GCS mm. to the point where you're not sure if they got if they're breathing spontaneously particularly well or you're not absolutely convinced that that little flappy thing I was talking about over the cylinder so the patent and protected airway mm. that that might be a problem um other obvious signs of airway compromise when someone's coming with penetrating neck injury that's mm. and they've got here open which we saw more than once yeah. um that's pretty obvious so I say it's not usually subtle but you do need to look for it and you need to be using your words of i think the airway is fine because yeah because that also gives the rest of the team to have a chance to be like but uh one side of their face looks different to the other yeah. oh, what are you doing <laughs> yeah <laughs> pointing out the obvious yeah um so yeah. um we think the airway is compromised for whatever so this guy actually has a gcs of we're going to make it six <laughs> Um, so he isn't maintaining his airway so he's you know he's not talking to you he's snoring a little bit or something what what are we going to do about it so classical ems atls teaching would say if it's the gcs less than six it's not a protected airway and you need to protect it the real life situation is often you'll be talking to your team going, look, he's got a decreased GCS, currently moving air in and out. Talk to whoever's at the head of the bed and be like, look, do you reckon you can get started on managing that and I'll see if there's another problem. But classically, technically speaking, GCS 6 would be like, all right, we probably need to do something about that. Mm. So the three easy steps for airway management as a surgeon and a trauma surgeon, not underneath this, uh, manoeuvres, adjuncts and tubes. Yeah. It's not hard. So if someone's snoring, simple manoeuvres that can help that, a chin lift and jaw thrust, do not do head tilt because it's not friendly to C-spines, so just don't do it. Um, and all of that does is it just pulls everything forward, especially the tongue off the back of the throat so that hopefully you can get some air going out of that. Okay, so that's your manoeuvre done mm. adjuncts basically um airway adjuncts are either oropharyngeal or nasopharyngeal tubes nasopharyngeal tubes we generally stand steer clear of in blunt trauma because of the risk of a base of skull injury and yeah. putting a tube through the base of skull injury into the brain is frowned upon <laughs> for obvious reasons um what i would say about that is if if someone tolerates putting in an oropharyngeal airway otherwise known as a goodell airway that's a very clear sign that they need a definitive airway, mm. which find by a cuff tube in the trachea because that's not good. If someone's mm. tolerating that piece of plastic down their throat, they need to be tubed. Yeah. Um, so that's the manoeuvres, that's your adjuncts, and then your tubes, endotracheal tube or front and neck access are technically speaking definitive trauma airways sometimes. You know, an LMA can get you out of trouble, but that won't be the exam answer because it's not mm. a cuffed tube yeah. in the trachea. Yeah. So you're kind of, you're assessing. And also sometimes, you know, if you give someone a good chin lift or jaw thrust, especially jaw thrust, that can mean you have to wake them up and go, oh, what the hell are you doing? You're like, oh, in GCS 6 up. That's good. Great. Excellent. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's quite, you know, you're hooking your fingers around the back at the angle of the jaw. That's unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so this patient wasn't talking to you, as we've said. You'd, we've put in a Goodell airway. He's tolerating it, as you said, bad sign. So, yeah, so you're like, okay, there's this lovely anaesthetist stood by you. You're like, if you could just intubate, you're going to move on, if that's okay. Well, or would you not do that? <laughs> as much as I love EMST, yes, but the other thing which any anaesthetist would tell you is if you try and put a tube down someone who's not GCS3, without any intravenous assistance, you're going to end in a world of pain. So yes, for the purposes of ATLS and being safe, you're going to say, we need to secure this airway. Mm -hmm. And you, you would be having a discussion with that. But in real terms, what you'd be saying in the news is like, look, this doesn't, you know, he's obtained it, he's tolerating Goodell, we're going to need to secure it. Yeah, And they will probably say to you, let's can you please check his breathing we'll get some IV access first yeah well, I'm going to actively manage from the head of the bed while that's happening yeah the reason why we teach it otherwise in ATLS is because that that is the baseline for if it's you and a nurse and that's it you can't move on because there's no one else to help you yeah yeah all right yeah but yeah I don't know. I don't know if I'm making that issue more confusing or less. <laughs> no, I think in a way, actually, that's sort of how I I wrote it, and then I changed it from what you said. But you, in a way, we've sec we've secured the airway temporarily, haven't we, with the Goodell? You know, he, his snoring stopped. Not secured. Not secured. Temporized, mm. maybe. Opened. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Temporized. And I mean, you need to have a look and see what's happening with breathing. Now, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we we need to move on. <laughs> So we are moving on to breathing. So as we've mentioned, so so that was what's involved in breathing. What are we going to do? Simply examine, and then I'll give you some findings. So again, it's it's really simple. You mm -hmm. look, you feel, and you listen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you look you will see what the respiratory rate is. You will see what the SATs are doing and you will see what FiO2 is being needed to maintain those SATs. And if the SATs are crap, then you need to give them some supplemental oxygen, right? You're going to have a look. You're going to see if they're in respiratory distress. Respiratory distress is not subtle, especially in trauma. You've already said his respirator was 24, I think. So he's tachypneic. So you want to know if he's also hypoxic. You're going to have a look and see what the chest wall movements are like. You're going to have a look and see if there's any obvious trauma to the chest so is there a sucking chest wound for example is one side of the chest moving or not mm -hmm. then you feel the really useful thing about putting both hands on the front of the chest is if someone has a tension in your thorax when they breathe in both of your hands will move back towards you because their breath, chest is moving outwards but when they breathe out mm -hmm. only one hand will move and the hand that will move is going to be the normal side because on the other side as we know tension in the thorax what happens mm -hmm. what happens Oh, I'm getting yeah. a I'm getting a question. Oh no! <laughs> and what happens? Well, the air's sucked in, and then it doesn't go back anywhere else. It so it's just stuck. staying, exactly. yeah. Because there's a ball valve mechanism, right? Mm. So the air's getting in when they breathe in, but it's not getting out when they breathe out. So if you put your hands on someone's chest only once, so the chest is moving, the other side is the problem. Yeah, it's not difficult. Yeah? You put yeah. hands on someone's chest, you can feel if they're sucking emphysema. Okay, and then you listen. Yes, you have to. Steal someone else's um, <laughs> You listen, and then you communicate to your team and say this patient's tachycardic, they're tachypneic, they've got reduced chest excursion on this side, there's no stress sounds on that side, I'm concerned that they have a pneumothorax, which may be tensioning, 
this is what I want to do to intervene. But you talk, yeah. because then if you find yourself saying something like, the left side of the chest isn't moving, I'm going to put a chest in the right, you give your team a chance to say, uh, are you shook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Those opportunities to, to step in. Yeah. So with this guy, he's got no breath sounds on the right-hand side, um, yep. but it's moving the same. What are you thinking could be the possibilities? And he's not, but like his trachea is central. I'm trying to hint or something. Yeah, so the trachea, and that's the other thing you feel for, but tracheal deviation is a very late sign. It's mm. worth finding if it's there. Um, so there's two possibilities. Either there's, well, actually, actually there's three. Either you've got no breast sounds on that side because that side is filled with fluid, it's filled with air, or you've got a traumatic diaphragmatic rupture and it's filled with guts. One of these things would be true. Um, and so it depends on all of those signs put together as to what you think is going on and whether you need to intervene now. So mm. it depends what his sats are. It depends what you found. Like, as I said, if you're finding both sides of the chest are moving and there's decreased air entry on that side, then it, it is worth percussing, although it's often really hard and easy to hear. Sorry, anything, him. Um, and yeah. it depends on whether, again, this is why ABC is useful, but you need to know if he's in a state of hemodynamic knee mm -hmm. collapse because if he is and he's not got any air entry on that side, you're going to decompress that side of the chest straight away because there's a chance that it's tensioning. And if you miss it, then that's bad. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make him have a hemothorax. <laughs> Failing. So uh, hemothorax, he, if it's that bad, he should probably be in a state of pretty significant hemodynamic collapse Yeah. Um, to have no breast sounds at all on that side. Um, okay. At the lower half. And you can, and eventually you can tension from a hemothorax. Yeah. Um, that is possible. Okay. So if you find, you find, so you, you your X-ray is there, so they whip over. Can you do that? Can we do that? Can we just get a really quick X-ray as part of our B? You can do it. You, <laughs> it's your emergency, but yes, you can. And look, and the other thing that's really useful is you've got an ultrasound there, right? You can do an mm. EFAS, so you can put it on, you're like, yeah, okay, there's no lung slide. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. So from what you said, it sounds like he needs that slide decompressed, but the urgency of it is dependent on whether he's, you know, trying to die or not. Yeah. which is hard to tell from this. But, yeah, if he's trying to die and he's got no breast sounds on that side, then just decompress the chest and you'll find out. Yeah. You'll find out what comes out as well. <laughs> I guess. Right. It'll be either air, air or, blood. or blood or nothing, and then you'll be like, hmm. Interesting. Once you've decompressed it, assess whether your intervention worked, because if it didn't, something's not right. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna, we've, put, uh, we've decompressed, we've put a drain in. Um, and he's actually got blood coming out of his of his chest, so not too much, just blood. Um, you only look on the other side, and just to put, just to this is a poor poor patient, but he's got this bit of his chest walls moving strangely now, <laughs> and we think on this the is a contralateral. Yeah, so on the contralateral side. On the other side. On the contralateral side. Well, it uh, needs that decompressed as well. Well, I, all I want to ask is, what's a flail chest? What's the definition of a flail chest? <laughs> is my question. Okay. <laughs> like, but, I am getting more and more 
so what it, it's basic respiratory physiology. So a flail chest is where you have a part of the chest wall that is not acting in concert with the rest. So in normal respiratory physiology, when you inspire, you have a negative intrathoracic pressure because the volume that is being occupied is bigger and the same amount of stuff is in it. So the pressure drops, that means air comes in. Then when you breathe out, air goes out, right? But if you've got a bit of the chest wall that is now sprung free from the rest, yeah, it's just floating around on its own, when you breathe in, because pressure is dropping, that will get sucked in. Which if you check yourself when you breathe, when you breathe in, everything goes out, not in, right? Yeah. So that's what a chest is. That's the physiology of a flower chest. Um, the definition, you've got to have... Actually, there's not consensus on whether it's two or three ribs, but they have to be broken in two places because, yeah. um, and they have to be consecutive or contiguous. So yeah. it's a whole bit of the chest wall that is acting out of keeping with how the rest of the chest is acting. So it's like a puzzle piece in your chest wall that's separate. Yeah. Think about it like that. that. Works. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's breathing covered in a roundabout kind of way. Um, <laughs> and it's and just, a few things with breathing, and this is really important, is if you drain a hemothorax, do not clamp the drain, okay? If a lot of blood comes out, that means the patient needs to go to theatre. But if you leave the blood in there, then their respiratory dynamics will not improve. Yeah. So yeah. don't. Yeah. And I guess it's a, you have to also monitor how much comes out, don't you? Because that could indicate whether you need to activate the major hemorrhage protocol or anything like that. Isn't, isn't there a certain um, amount? So it's a few things. So the patient's behaviour will be your indicator of whether they need a massive transfusion protocol mm -hmm. and you need to know your own hospital's um, MTP, how to activate it and what you get in a pack. But there are certain kind of guidelines for what, means someone needs to go to theatre to stop it. And the reason for that is a lot, most things, if they're bleeding in the chest, will stop spontaneously. Mm. And the kind of guidelines around, you know, 1,500 mils immediately, this many mils per hour for these many hours, are trying to tell you probably it's not going to stop on your own. The caveat with all of those guidelines is that they are built for this mysterious typical patient who doesn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, if you have a... 80-year-old woman in front of you weighs all of 40 kilos and you're waiting for her to dump 1,500 mils to think she's got a problem that needs theatre, you are probably going to let her die. Mm -hmm. But that's what these numbers exist. Yeah. To help us use our heads to go, maybe this won't stop by itself. Mm -hmm. Right. I am going to interject my conversation with Annalise right now and stop this episode here. I think we've had plenty of time and um, I imagine attention spans are waning or you've made it to work so i'll wish you a great day or a great evening and we will be back next week to finish off our primary survey take care bye bye oh, well, a dim, boom, dim, boom, dim. Try.